we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening and welcome to Done By Law on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. This evening we're talking about the Australian Government's COVID Safe contact tracing app released on the 26th of April this year. One month in and with just one instance of the app being used, there is need to reflect on the privacy concerns and human rights implications raised by the app's operation. We also want to discuss more rights-focused, decentralised design alternatives. We're lucky to be joined tonight by Samantha Floriani, Campaigns Officer at Digital Rights Watch. Welcome, Samantha. Hi, thanks for having me. To start, I just wondered if you could give us a brief overview of how the app works. Absolutely. So, essentially, the app uses Bluetooth low energy to detect other phones that are running the app nearby. And so when the app detects another phone nearby, it records a unique identifier of that phone and the duration of the time that you are in proximity with each other. It then takes that ID, ID and it encrypts it. So the data is then retained on your phone for 21 days, which is the duration of contagiousness. And in, if a, an app user tests positive over that time, then essentially that information is shared with the government who is able to decrypt the information and then that information is passed on to the relevant state health authority who then will get in touch with those who are potentially infected users. So the government said that we needed 40% of the population to download the app in order for it to be effective but as it turned out that number wasn't really based on anything. It wasn't based on any modeling. It wasn't based on any projections. And studies elsewhere have suggested that in order for the app to be effective, we would actually need to see about 60 to 80% of the population, not just downloading the app, but actually able to run it correctly on their phone as well. Right. Um, look, there have been some concerns raised by civil advocates about, about the app. And I know that on the 25th of April, Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt made a determination under the Biosecurity Act um, in relation to this. And then on the 14th of May, Parliament passed the Privacy Amendment Public Health Contact Information Act. And the government has also published their privacy policy for the app. What privacy safeguards have been put in place by the government? So I think when thinking about this, it's really important to keep in mind that unfortunately, the government does have a series of embarrassments when it comes to tech projects and also several deliberately privacy invasive initiatives in its recent history. And so there is a level of distrust in the government and that remains a pretty big obstacle when trying to implement a project like this. What we've seen is that information about the app was sort of trickled out piece by piece from multiple different spokespeople in the lead up to the app. And that didn't really help the situation in terms of 
dealing with this um, distrust. But, you know, that being said, they, they have put some privacy protections into place. Um, so the privacy impact assessment, as you mentioned, was released uh, on the same day as the app itself. So while we're really happy to see a privacy impact assessment, this really should have been released much earlier in the piece to allow for scrutiny and for there to be improvements made for the um, potential privacy impacts before the app was available to download. The biosecurity determination that you mentioned, um, it did contain some important steps, but it didn't really do anything to address concerns with existing legislation like TOLA, the Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment, which is also known as the anti-encryption anti legislation. Um, and while the, the draft legislation that was then introduced following the determination was actually relatively robust, um, this was also released several weeks after the app, which is in and of itself a problem. In terms of um, the, what the legislation itself contains, there have been some really important improvements made in the legislation that weren't in the determination, which we were happy to see. So for example, uh, it included some really clear restrictions on law enforcement agencies being able to become a COVID safe data administrator. And this was a really big issue. Um, and it's a, quite a huge step for the government to rebuff multiple attempts from law enforcement agencies to be able to access the app and the data that it gathers. So that was a big win. Um, the legislation also permits individuals to take some enforcement action on their own behalf if there's a privacy breach. So this essentially means that they can make a complaint to the Federal Privacy Commissioner if something goes wrong. And we also were really pleased to see that there were some uh, pr protections offered to prevent people and businesses uh, from coercing people into downloading an app. So what that might look like is, for example, refusing entry to a restaurant if you haven't downloaded the app or charging more for a haircut if you haven't downloaded the app. So there are protections in place to stop people coercing others into using the app. Great, well, that's good to hear. I guess it sounds like there's been some safeguards put in place and that um, there's some good developments uh, following the, the passing of that Privacy Amendment Public Health Contact Information Act. On the whole, are these safeguards sufficient? And if not, what are the gaps? Yeah, that's a really important question to ask. We have been pretty, um, like there have been some really positive steps, but it's not perfect. Um, and it's been, it's been really good to see a level of transparency and some emphasis on, on privacy from the government regarding the app and the protections around it. It's clear that they were really aware that this would raise concerns from the community. Um, and so it was a really nice change to see them actively trying to address these issues. So the exposure draft and the consultation for the bill governing the app was, was the right way to do it. And the end result is legislation that has addressed many of the concerns in the community. Um, however, we should remember that this really is the bare minimum that we should expect from the government regarding any kind of technological development that has the risk of impinging on human rights. We shouldn't be too quick to pat the government on the back for doing the basics. 
So this approach, and ideally more, really should be the standard moving forward from here. As an example, it's really great that they released the app source code. This demonstrates the sort of transparency and accountability that should be the minimum for projects like this. But again, it, it came a fortnight after the app was launched. And also the only code that was released was the user end. So most people are much more interested in knowing what's happening on the government end rather than what's happening on people's phones. And so while it was a really good first step, it's really not quite enough. So in terms of the safeguards and the legislation, there are some important gaps that still remain after this process. And one of the big ones is that there's a lack of a strict sunset clause. So the government has not really set a clear benchmark for when the app will stop collecting data and how it will ensure that, that there is safe destruction of all the data that it holds at the time when, when the crisis eases. So this is a really important one because we need to know that this kind of measure is temporary and will be rolled back once uh, the state of emergency is, is relaxed. And just to clarify, that's in relation to the information that would be uploaded to the government servers. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we need to be really clear on when that would all be deleted. Um, there's no need for the government to retain that data after the crisis has relaxed. And that's a really important um, core principle when it comes to, to the privacy protections. And do we know what data is sent to the government server? So there's a bit of personal information that you, when you sign up to the app that you give it, you hand over. Um, the main thing that they collect if you test positive is uh, the, all of the encrypted user IDs of everyone you've come in proximity with, and as well as some information about you so that they can contact um, you and all of the other people who have come in contact with you. Okay. So that might seem relatively innocuous, but when you start thinking about things like um, what that what that means, what sort of picture that can reveal. It essentially um, it includes anyone that you've been meeting with. So, for example, if you are, for example, a journalist or a whistleblower or any kind of political activist, the, that kind of information can be quite sensitive and quite powerful. Um, but other other examples are, for example, if you um, face domestic violence, for example, having an increased ability or potential increased ability for people to know where you are and who you're seeing can raise a lot of concerns. So one of the other gaps that remain is that, well, I mentioned before that it's really great that people aren't able to coerce people into downloading COVID safe specifically. There isn't really any protection offered to people from private companies and workplaces that require people to download a similar app. For example, we've seen that BHP developed a similar app and was requiring their workers to download it. And so this protection really needs to be extended to any similar app because allowing companies and workplaces to track their staff in their off work hours sets a really alarming precedent for workplace surveillance. Um, beyond that, there's, there isn't really robust independent oversight for the, for the use and potential misuse of the app. So it would be really great to see that improved. 
and also for all the noise around refusing law enforcement access, there are existing powers and operations of our surveillance agencies that make it impossible to be entirely confident in these safeguards. So it's a good, like I said, it's kind of the, the, the running theme is it's, it's a good first step. We've achieved the basics, but it really could go a bit further. Absolutely. And I guess we've already explored this a bit. Is there any particular implications for privacy as we understand that term and, and human rights um, raised by this? Definitely. I mean, this, this debate has been a really interesting and quite a fundamental one when it comes to thinking about privacy and human rights in a time of crisis. We're very quick often to switch to kind of like trade-off language where it's like, well, you know, for the sake of public health, we need you to sacrifice some of your privacy. And talking about human rights in a trade-off context, it can be really harmful because it forces people to make a decision that they really shouldn't have to. So any initiative undertaken by the government using digital technologies and personal information needs to be transparent. It needs to be temporary, as I was saying earlier, and it really needs to be proportionate in order to generate that kind of uh, social license and public trust that they need to operate under. A big part of this issue has been this idea of normalizing surveillance. So we really need to keep in mind the overarching impact of these kinds of projects. So even if this app itself isn't the worst thing, we need to keep in mind what it sets precedent for later on down the path. The more that people become used to and comfortable with government having access to our personal information, then the more likely we are to see further encroaches on this in the future because people will become accustomed to it. And another key issue that this has brought up is trust. Uh, so the government has been asking for a, a lot of trust from people, um, from the public to download this app and take, take their word for it when they say that it's safe. But unfortunately, the track record just doesn't fill people with confidence that the government, A, takes privacy and data protection very seriously, or B, is even able to effectively roll out a large scale technical solution. And we've seen this in very recent examples in terms of the anti-encryption legislation, metadata retention scheme, both of which flew in the face of a lot of um, privacy and security experts and expectations. TOLA, the anti-encryption legislation, essentially weakened our encryption, uh, tech, tech companies' ability to encrypt uh, devices. And the metadata retention, which came in in 2015, essentially established a scheme where uh, telecommunications companies were required to re retain metadata. Um, people may remember that caused a bit of a debate, a bit of a public debate around what is metadata? Is it privacy invasive? Um, both of these pieces of legislation caused a lot of stir in the human rights, digital rights, privacy and data protection space because they really fundamentally um, undermined a lot of the protections that we really need to have in order to uphold human rights in a digital age. And I, I wonder whether there is a bit of a gap between the public's conception of privacy and the government's conception of what privacy might mean. I know that 
the personal information you know collected by COVID Safe is governed under the Privacy Act, and as we mentioned, the Privacy Amendment Public Health Contact Information Act. So you've you've raised a bit about this kind of trade-off language and and the messaging that surrounded this app. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to comment further on on what messaging's been put out and how that might have impacted on um, how people were viewing the app. Yeah, I think that it's a really important thing to bring up because yes, there's been some really important um, issues in terms of the technical flaws of the app. And yes, there's been some really important things coming up around the safeguards and the legislation around the app, but it's also um, important to think about the kind of public debate that we're having and the kind of messaging that we're seeing around the app. It has been upsetting to see the amount of highly moralizing language um, in terms of making people feel like it's a civic duty or framing it as a question of right or wrong when the reality is it's just so much more nuanced than that. For a lot of people, it may not be as simple as right or wrong because you have all of these other things to consider in terms of who you are and what, what kind of risk might you might have to undertake by downloading something like this. We've also seen all kinds of like wartime language being used, which kind of creates this really emotive sense of like Australian duty to, you know, rally together against the virus, which is an effective persuasive technique, but it really kind of like blurs a lot of the important questions that we need to be asking around, is this the right approach to be taking? Is it encroaching on our rights? Because it just creates such like a emotive, uh, sensation people who are who are listening to it and of course it's also potentially quite harmful when we start to conflate safety and protection with downloading the app which we've seen um, with comments around you know it was kind of easy to scoff at the comment that um, downloading the app was like sunscreen and that it will protect you when you leave the house but the problem with this kind of messaging is that it creates a bit of a false sense of security uh, it should go without saying that you know the app can only go so far and it, its functionality it doesn't protect you from from getting the virus and so um, the messaging is really overstated um, the functionality of the app and and I would just hate to see people treating it as kind of like a silver bullet that's going to protect them as as restrictions are relaxing and then putting themselves and others at risk because they've been sold sort of a beefed up version of what the app really can do. Mm. Digital rights chair Lizzie O'Shea has been quoted as saying the people who are most vulnerable to contracting the virus tend to be people who are less likely to be online, less likely to be able to use an app like this. Uh, what are your comments on this? Yeah, this is a really important point that Lizzie has highlighted that so often is getting left out of the conversation and just generally kind of overlooked in this whole public debate around the app. Um, there are some really important intersections and questions about accessibility and risk um, that really need to be at the forefront of um, these conversations. And one of them is this accessibility issue for those who are not online, of which there are about 2 million Australians, um, and those who perhaps aren't as technologically literate or tech savvy, or those who just have older phones and, and an app like this is just gonna really struggle to, to function. So these people, even if 
they want to download the app, which they, you know, they can make that choice to do, they're not able to access this kind of technology. So it's quite a large oversight from the government and also all the commentary around it that has just kind of left all of these people out of the equation. Something else we sort of need to think about when we're thinking about intersections is this idea of privilege and risk. We've seen a lot of really wealthy tech savvy people who are quite uh, prominent in this space, you know, proclaim, proclaim really uh, you know, forthrightly and loudly that they don't see any issue with the app and so they're downloading it uh, as a way of cheerleading. Yeah. And for them, that's fine. Perhaps they've never faced a situation where they've had to be concerned about their information being used against them, or maybe they've never had any sort of privacy, you know, um, qualms before. But this just isn't the reality for a lot of people who are in marginalized groups or have increased um, risk of domestic violence if they're Aboriginal Australian um, or, you know, don't speak English or asylum seeker refugees. All of these groups really need to be considered when we try to apply a technical solution to a problem like this. And the fact that they've kind of been overlooked speaks really loudly to the, I guess, the general over oversight issue that government hasn't fully considered how this will impact a lot of different groups of people. Absolutely. Just to kind of draw things to a close, um, there's been announcements in the past week that Apple and Google have developed a, a decentralised contact tracing system known as exposure notifications or an API. This um, commentators have, have said that this addresses some of the concerns with models like the COVID Safe app, where information is all sent to a centralised government controlled server, whereas these programs are decentralised. Communication takes place between people's phones without the need for government intervention. Um, what are some of the advantages of this new system? Uh, and I guess, what are any concerns that still might um, remain in terms of these kind of proposals? Yeah, so Germany, as an example, has already switched away from a centralised system like we have right now to this decentralised model, which is what Google and uh, Apple are offering with this API is this decentralised model as you identified. So the benefit of having a decentralised model is that it doesn't position one central authority, so in our case, the government, with access to the data. Instead, if you are exposed to someone who's been tested positive, their phone would automatically alert all those it has come into contact to, to let them know that they need to get tested and self-quarantine, rather than having the government act as kind of like the middleman in that process. So there's been many security and cryptography experts that have said they would much prefer the use of Apple slash Google's API because of this decentralized model. It is expected that it will have um, not just better privacy protections and the decentralized model is sort of inherently more privacy protecting, but it's also expected that it will just work better, which is a really fundamental question of this whole app is like, why, you know, if we're talking about privacy and digital rights, if it doesn't even work, if it doesn't even do the job that it's supposed to do, then it like trying to position it as something that we should trade privacy and rights for is kind of insane. Um, so 
privacy and security experts were calling for a decentralized model long before the app was released. And we still haven't really been given a satisfactory answer as why the government opted for a centralized approach from the outset. Um, but now if we were to convert to the Google Apple API, this would fundamentally change the entire approach that the government has taken. And this would likely require a lot more attention in terms of um, the protections that is, are included in the legislation, but also it would essentially require the government to rearrange the whole underlying cryptographic notification mechanism. So that's like quite a significant amount of work. And so while it is the preferable approach, and there have been whispers that potentially we might adopt this API, people are also a bit skeptical that this step will be taken because it, it will completely change like the underlying approach that the government has taken. There are, as you mentioned, of course, always concerns when it comes to increasing the scope of information that any major tech company collects, uses and shares. And so no matter who is building the app, there should always be robust safeguards in place to limit scope creep and to include a very clear sunset clause and to, to place safeguards against abuses. But it's pretty um, alluring with the option of having a, a decentralized approach with more robust privacy and security uh, protections in place. Great. So it seems like there's some promise there, potentially, if the government decides <laughs> <laughs> to pursue it. Um, look, thanks so much for joining us, Samantha. It's been such a pleasure chatting to you about this. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Done By Law on 3CR 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We've been talking with Samantha Floriani, Campaigns Officer at Digital Rights Watch, about privacy and human rights concerns surrounding the Australian government's rollout of the COVID Safe contact tracing app. Thanks so much for joining us and stay tuned for Voices of West Papua coming up next. <laughs>